don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh... Hello and welcome to the end of the world. This Take is two. Anthropocene's episode 7. Uh, today we're talking about Paul Thomas Anderson's 2007 kind of magnum opus, There Will Be Blood. And uh, today we drink your milkshake. Mm. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> drink it up. So I should have worn my shirt. I've got a, a fanboy There Will Be Blood t-shirt in the, you know, the font that the credits are in uh, that just says, I drink your milkshake. It was a Christmas present from that, my mom. <laughs> that would have played well on the podcast on a audio medium. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so this is, you know, kind of continuing in the vein of Wally. weirdly enough. This was a big hit, you know, not in the same kind of way. Both directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah. Um, but this was a, another big, you know, big Hollywood movie has become kind of an instant classic. Uh, the New York, New York Times named it as the best movie of the 21st century so far. Is it, is it A24 or I guess it's Paramount... Whatever, like the the indie, I don't even know the terms. Like it's it's Paramount Pictures, I'm pretty sure. So I, I don't know if it's technically classifiable as like Hollywood production. It's just that Paul Thomas Anderson is one of a handful of directors who has like a Hollywood budget. Yeah, you know for for his for his projects that are that are independent in the sense that he has final cut. You know. Yeah, and interestingly, I just kind of thought about this. It seems like Paul Thomas Anderson is one of those only um, uh, kind of indie directors, if we, he can even be called that anymore, that uh, where the, the budget shows in the film. Um, and there will be blood, definitely, with um, you know, the use of some pyrotechnics and just um, general sort of uh, period-appropriate things, like the clothing and all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. Um Similar kind of thing with Boogie Nights, weirdly, even though that was a smaller budget film. Um, but like Magnolia with the Raining Frogs, like yeah, that couldn't like, have been cheap. Oh, no. And that was a. Uh, I remember seeing the, uh, uh, like, backs, what do you call it? Like a document making of sort of thing. And it apparently it was just the biggest pain in the ass in the world to, to film that scene. But it's like, Paul Thomas Anderson is more uh, indie in spirit than in. Practice, like you said, he's he's uh, he's not part of the mumblecore. You know, he's not making it with no. an iPhone, and um, you know, he's not. It's not Joe Swanberg. No, uh, the the Duplasses. Or yeah, yeah. Um, so this movie comes out in two thousand seven at the Oscars. It's nominated for eight of them and only wins two. Why? Because it, it runs into a perfect storm of coming up against... Not the perfect storm. <laughs> well, no, not the perfect storm, but it runs into what is probably tied for first or second best film of twenty of the 21st century, which is No Country for Old Men by the Coen brothers. Um, so it ends up winning Best Actor for Daniel Day-Lewis because, of course, it did, and Best Cinematography. Robert Ellswit. Yeah, which is... Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Um... So yeah, it loses Best Picture. It loses Best Adapted Screenplay, right. um, all that kind of stuff. Um, Any so. other year, uh, it probably takes all of those. It probably takes Best Director. It probably takes 
screenplay uh, and maybe even film. Uh, that it didn't even win Best Director was kind of amazing. Well, the Coen Brothers are another another you know indie rooted uh, directing team that uh, uh, has you know has final cut and can sort of do as they please. They could they can make as big or little of a movie as they want, and they sort of do that. You yeah. know, there's a real range of what they do. Um, where you have like a serious man, a serious man, which is pretty pretty low key, and then yeah. you have like Oh Brother Arthur, period piece with <laughs> yeah. George Clooney and all these things. Uh, but yeah, I think you you see a real split between 21st century indie and 20th century indie, where you know Paul Thomas Anderson, the Coen Brothers, coming out of the uh, 90 early 90s and, and late 90s, uh, it's a very different sort of indie than digital filmmaking, digital indie of the 21st century, like like we just said. Uh, so uh, Charlie Kaufman's another person I would put on that list, and Spike Jones and, and their collaborations of those days, unfortunately, are, are kind of gone where you're going to get a uh, wide theatrical release um, with a decent budget, you know, a film with a decent budget that is the vision of one filmmaker or in the Coen Brothers case two filmmakers yeah it doesn't really seem to, to happen as much anymore there, there's just a handful of them that are all like in their late 40s now like the Coen Brothers and Paul Thomas Anderson Wes Anderson Noah Baumbach uh, I guess uh, Inyaritu and uh, Guillermo del Toro are sort of in that vein too where they they kind of have free reign but you know, Tyler Perry you know, Tyler Perry. The Tyler Perry's and the Paul Thomas Andersons are few and far yeah. between. You yeah. know, um, not that there's anything wrong with Tyler Perry movies. Just <laughs> not, not my cup of tea. Um, so, it, like, uh, to return to this adapted screenplay um, concept for a second. So, no, there's something wrong with Tyler Perry movies. <laughs> there's something wrong with uh, Medea movies. <laughs> I'll say that, um, but. PTA has said about using uh, Oil, the novel that this is based on, the Sinclair Lewis. Uh, Upton, Upton Sinclair. Sinclair. I always do that. The <laughs> Upton Sinclair novel that this is based on, um, that he only used the first 150 pages. Uh, so, you know, a loose kind of adaptation, whereas No Country is kind of more closely, more close, more close, closer to the text. Yeah, more faithful, um, quote unquote. Yeah, um, even though it does change quite a bit. And we were talking about the, and we'll talk about this kind of more throughout probably, but the, the shift in point of view where in oil, which I've never read, but I did skim the Wikipedia article, so I'm qualified so to talk about it. it. Yeah, I pretty much got it. Um, the, the point of view shifts from the novel to the film because in the novel it's more focused on the sun. And the sun develops all these kind of like socialist leanings and is you know up against the father who is the big oil tycoon so it's sort of you don't see how the father got established he just is established and is super you know uh, rich by the time of the novel whereas in the film um, we we get the backstory right and I, I think the the son in the novel ends up killing himself I, I don't know I didn't read <laughs> I didn't read or that maybe part. that was like maybe that was from the 
story that the like the true story that the novel was based on. Maybe because yeah, the novel was itself of, based on a true story, right. and then the film. A lot based of on different the novel. Uh, uh, things at play here. Now I remember reading something. I'm getting it all confused now because there's three different levels this is working on. But the uh, mansion that the final scene of There Will Be Blood is shot in is like the actual house where the guy killed himself. Oh. Yeah. And if you pause it at just the right moment, there's a ghost (laughs) bowling a strike in the background. Right. Um, But, yeah, so you get that point of view shift from the son to get the backstory of how the father became the, the oil baron, right? And you see the kind of ruthlessness that goes into that and the kind of attitude. And, you know, we'll talk more about that. Um, same thing happens in No Country, where in the novel you get much more of Ed Tom's, Ed Tom Bell's, um, the sheriff, Tommy Lee Jones in the film. You get more of his point of view, and that's kind of what makes, in my opinion, what makes the novel great. Um, and in the film you lose it, but that makes the film a different, very different piece of art same general outline of the story but the it's just a different kind of you know monster yeah yeah and it, it may have something to do with the fact that Cormac McCarthy you know is still alive as that's being adapted up to Sinclair obviously long dead I, I suspect there's a little bit more pressure uh, for fidelity when the when, person's around when the person's still living and uh I remember in their, I think it was in their Oscar speech, the Coen brothers talking about their adapted screenplay said, if it, if there's any doubt how much we respect Cormac McCarthy as a writer, we've adapted, we've only ever adapted two writers in our life. Uh, one of them is Cormac McCarthy and the other one is Homer. <laughs> yeah. So like everything else they write themselves, but like, these two, in these two cases, though, they, they will adapt Homer and McCarthy. I like the idea of uh, Cormac McCarthy as our Homer. Um, uh, don't get me started on Cormac. Uh, weirdly, I think we've talked more about No Country for Old Men than we have <laughs> There Will Be Blood. But, you know, bears repeating that these two films come out in the same year, right? That's like, you know, several decades worth of film greatness kind of in, in one case. And it's not the same thing of like, you know, Volcano, Dante's Peak, uh, <laughs> whatever, but but yeah. there is a like sort of a similar thing. Armageddon and Deep Impact. Right, 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 right. Uh, these are forever linked in my mind just because they're 2007 badass westerns in a way. Yeah, and the idea of it as a western is something yeah. that I think is interesting that we can come back to. Um, but to, to set all this up, we're going to introduce this kind of, make a very academic move and introduce this theoretical framework uh, that we're going to be kind of working within. And we'll, you know, we'll go outside of it, obviously. <clears throat> but it comes from, you know, we've had Will read a lot from papers in the past. And I'm going to read from a paper that I wrote for a conference that one where Will uh, was present, actually. And I wrote about There Will Be Blood in this frame of a kind of eco-critical uh, sort of... Uh, in the paper, I called it uh, Freudio-Marxist, which is kind of true, but I just wanted to say that because it sounded cool. Freudio-Marxist, the other Marx brother. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, all he did was talk about Groucho's cigar. <laughs> um, 
So uh, we'll, I'll just kind of skip around a little bit because there are only a couple things that are um, important. The first thing is introducing this idea from Annette Kaladny, who was an American eco-critical uh, literary critic. The Lay of the Land. The Lay of the Land. So Annette Kaladny's The Lay of the Land is a valuable source of eco-feminist critique for these purposes, purposes of uh, interpreting There Will Be Blood, I guess. Uh, Kaladny claims that in American art and letters, the land has always been imagined as feminine. The American dream is tantamount to a kind of return to a feminine embrace that promises a regressive escape from the demands of adult life. For early settlers and later pioneers to the western United States, the land was open and welcoming and offered, quote, a resurrection of the lost state of innocence that the adult abandons when he joins the world of competitive self-assertion. Here, a clear connection to the Lacanian concept, conception of the mirror phase can be traced with, quote, the world of competitive self-assertion standing in for the symbolic order the, quote, resurrection of the lost state of innocence for the pre-symbolic order of the infant, and the inviting, exploitable land as a kind of jouissance, uh, return to joy. Um, my French is not good, so roast me if you must. This desire for a return to the pre-symbolic through nature did not end with the full exploration and subduing of the continent, however, and continues to be manifested. As Claudine notes, quote, the pastoral landscape still seems to beckon us, calling us into state parks and our children to summer camps, urging us to withdraw from the current and go back to an initial moment of perfect peace, absolute harmony, and freedom from want within a feminine and wholly gratifying natural world. It is no mistake here that state parks and summer camps suggest a natural landscape brought to hill by human forces, both physical and economic, spaces that exist as, a special, separate, as special separate pockets within the greater landscape of the country, demarcated and cordoned off through the use of legal and imaginary membranes of cartography and land ownership. So that's kind of introducing the concept of from Kaladny of the, the landscape, the American landscape in particular, being con conceived as this kind of feminine space, but in with a negative kind of connotation to it. Right, and that's territory I think we've, we've that's sort of been implicit in a lot of what we've talked about um, and in a lot of the metaphors uh, of many of these films, whether it's conscious, like in uh, First Reformed, uh, you know, the body, uh, the body is a metaphor for the earth, or the earth is a metaphor for the body. Uh, Toller's alcoholism is kind of a, you know, a, a metaphor. You know, the alcohol is to his body what the. Uh, uh, the, the many ways in which we poison the earth, you know, that, that that's the metaphor. Um, or if it's unconscious, like in Interstellar, it's just, uh, well, I don't even know if it's unconscious. It's just, it's conscious and, and it just doesn't care. Like it it, it, it's rejecting right. care. Like we've talked about. Um, I really like the, the idea that you were talking about of, uh, regressive this like regressive space uh, this sort of womb like uh, yeah. I can't remember the exact uh, uh, phrase you used but it, it made me think of uh, a book I referenced uh, in, in one episode Love's Body by Norman O. Brown and he's sort of using Plato's you know uh, allegory of the cave sort of uh Interprets the world as like a series of caves in which you in which you hide from the light, you know, and 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 refuse to to be born. And and I think the phrase he used was like 
uh, self-assertion or, or assertiveness or something like that. Um, but I think what, what I'm getting at is I think you see that at the, in the opening of There Will Be Blood of this, you know, he, he literally starts inside the earth in this, uh, I think in your essay you call it a, a shaft. Um, <laughs> Purposefully. Yeah. But, but I, I almost just sort of unconsciously called it a canal. Like, yeah. we're, we're just automatically using, like, bodily language to describe it. And it's almost like this, this whole opening sequence is like this traumatic birth sequence, right? And it's like, you know, he falls down the the shaft, breaks his leg, discovers I think it's silver that he that he finds, and if you want to if you want to see uh, the character Daniel Plainview as like this embodiment of American capitalism, it's like here is where capitalism is born, and here's yeah. how it's born, and it, it, it's like he was never supposed. to to exist, you know, he's supposed to die in that hole, yes, where he belongs. But but his his will power is so strong, you know, that he, he climbs up out of this hole into the light, asserts himself. And I, I watch, I re re listen to the video of uh, Tarantino on YouTube talking about uh, there will be blood's influence on on him as a filmmaker and. And one of the things he talks most about is the what's left unsaid or unseen in between the shot of Daniel Plainview crawling out of the uh, canal, the hole, and then lying on the floor having his silver uh, uh, priced. Uh, yeah. And that, I mean, if you and you see that sort of horror, you hear the horror music sort of playing when you see the landscape uh, that he has this desert landscape that he has to drag himself by his elbows through. Um, and Tarantino seems to think that all the negative associations that you have with this character are sort of tempered with this respect. That you feel for him and his his work ethic and his will to power, uh, because he sort of earned it. He, he said, "There's a lot going on in that abs in that absent scene of what he did to get where he is." Uh, I don't agree. Uh, I don't agree that it forgives anything he does, but I do think that that uh, you know that scene is left for us to imagine the sheer will it would have taken but I think in my case I take it as just emphasis on his maniacal uh, assertion his maniacal will to uh, existence if you want to keep it in the sort of birth metaphor yeah and he's like you know fucking Michael Myers or something in that in that scene right that's why uh, talking about reading it two different ways where he he crawls out of the the canal and he uh, he's you know looking at how far he has to go and we get that wide shot and we get that Johnny Greenwood staying where it's like wow yeah. it's very intimidating um, and you can read that either as being like look how far he has to go but I always kind of read it as like this is how far he's willing to go to sort of right. get to that end point uh, and cash in on this this silver that he's found um, and like you say his his uh his just all-consuming drive, right? And um, in my notes here, I was I wrote down um, a synopsis of the film in two words, which was just Daniel wants. 
just wants things and, and he does everything he can to get them. Mm-hmm. And that's, we talk about that as being sort of quintessential positive American quality of like, you work to get whatever you want. And yeah. as long as you work hard enough, you'll get it. Ambition is always, not always, but it's almost always used in a positive light. Mm-hmm. Um, but just to to look at this this part of this paper that talks about that opening scene, um, and I'm going to substitute the word canal for shaft because I like the way that sounds better. Um, and I, what I was trying to emphasize is that this scene shows Daniel's relationship to the land. Um, so in 1898, the film begins, we see Daniel alone, deep within a canal, picking steadily in the earth, and what is the first of several mishaps in the film, precipitated by bad luck paired with faulty technology, he slips and falls down the shaft, breaking or the canal, breaking his leg. However, upon realizing that he has found the silver he was looking for, we see his almost superhuman drive for success and profit take hold, and he drags himself up the canal and across a rocky desert in order to receive his payment. And that's where we get the scene of him. You know, laying in agony on the the floor of the whatever wherever that is, the uh, person who's who's uh, paying him out for the silver. Nineteen o two, Daniel's once again inside of the earth, knee deep in mud, as he and another man fight against overpowering fumes as they dig. Uh, what occurs next is a series of images that tie the discovery and extraction of oil to a sexualized form of land exploitation that takes oil as its raison d'etre and object of desire. And this is where I, I tried to get sexual with the description without just being like, it's a dick. Um, a large drill bit, phallic in appearance and action, plummets down the pit and deeply penetrates the ground, revealing oil. When the bit is brought up, Daniel strokes it with his hand to confirm that it has struck oil, and holding up his palm to the other workers in an almost devotional manner. And it is kind of like like a religious sort of experience almost when he holds his hand up and they're like, wah. Um, the workers dump the oil into a crudely made reservoir on the surface, showing the physical signification of their extraction and accumulation. Um, H.B. Elman is shown dipping his finger into the reservoir, and in one of the film's more iconic scenes, smudges it onto his infant son's forehead, uh, performing a sort of capitalistic baptism of the child. Soon after, a falling piece of rigging kills Elman while he toils in the pit, and Daniel decides to take the infant H.W. as his own. I believe it's somewhere in that sequence, too, where one of the only uh, breaks from the rigid formalism of the film is, you know, when uh, Dan, I think it's when he, as he gently (laughs) strokes the uh, shaft or or (laughs) whatever that, no, it's not a shaft, it's the the drill. Uh, It's like he flings... uh, oil onto the camera lens yeah you know what I'm talking about yeah um, I don't really know what to do with that but I will say and we were talking about this before we recorded the film the films of PTA before there will be blood are very very different and um, very flashy and you know get meta at a lot of points especially Magnolia and are more about films, films about films in some ways. Um, and so there's all these really cool camera angles and camera tricks and, and things like that in those movies. And there's not much of that in There Will Be Blood. But there are a few little hints of that that sort of take you out 
or a little bit take you out. And, and one example is when you see oil on the camera lens um, and the other is just sort of weird phrases where the, the brother played by Kevin J. O'Connor, Henry, uh, or the false brother uh, says, I'm your brother from another mother. You know, it's just like, <laughs> it's like 1908 and or 1902. And he says brother from another mother. Um, Anyway, that's a more, you know, sort of uh, film art observation. But I'm wondering, I don't really have anything do, to do with that. Like, like, why in that moment do you think he chooses to, in, in some way, break from the formalism? Or, or, or is it distracting? I'll, I'll tell you why I think it's, it's important. But I'm going to make this other point first. So okay. if I forget, remind me of yeah. the oil hitting the camera. Um but just the formal kind of aspect, I, I think it's interesting to think about those moments where it kind of gets, if not meta, then a little bit weird in the film. Um, because w- what I thought of when you said that, first thing that popped into my head was the scene in Magnolia, the the sing-along, the weird like music video mm-hmm. with the Amy, Amy Mann song in the middle of it. Wise Up. Uh, yeah, and, and how weird that is in, in a film that's already really strange for a lot yeah. of reasons. Um, so you know, PTA does these kinds of things, um, weird little little tidbit, uh, tidbits like that. Um, but coming back to the the oil in it hitting the the camera, so I used an Amitabh Ghosh quote in this that I think is is relevant to this, and it comes from this essay he had called "Petrofiction: The Oil Encounter and the Novel," which is not in The Great Derangement. It's in Incendiary Times, which is his, I think nonfiction book before that that's just kind of a collection of essays and he's talking about petrol fiction uh, specifically in literature but I think it applies to this as well and he's talking about the, the kind of conception of oil that Americans have and he says to a great many Americans oil smells bad it reeks of unavoidable overseas entanglements a worrisome foreign dependency economic uncertainty risky and expensive military enterprises of thousands of dead civilians and children and all the troublesome questions that lie buried in their graves it reeks, it stinks, it becomes a problem that can be written about only in the language of solutions. And I think that how that ties into the scene in the novel is it kind of, even though this is, it's really easy to watch this film and say this is about Daniel Plainview and his kind of ascendancy to being this capitalist uh, pig dog <laughs> kind of later on. Um, I, I like that oil flicking on the camera because it, it sort of is a reminder that this is what this is all about like this is about the oil this is about the the process of extraction and moving it and refining it and all that sort of stuff um, it's about this you know smelly gross viscous substance that sticks to everything right um, and that's why you know you see them digging that shaft uh, down in that canal um, hitting the back walls of the earth trying to find this oil <laughs> Um, cleaning cobwebs yeah. with the old womb burn. <laughs> and they have uh, you know they have the the masks on because they might and they have to like stop and take a breath because they could pass out because of all the fumes right it's poison yeah. it's, po- it's literal <laughs> yeah, to poison the human yeah. Body, yeah. Um, so you know going back to like Toller drinking his whiskey and, and all this and right. the idea of putting poison into something this is Daniel kind of putting poison out into the world, right? right? And doing it for, for a profit. Yeah, and we can't even avoid 
I mean, talking about present day political uh, situations with uh, oil pipelines and oil spills. And, you know, it's so strange to think how oil is the, you know, literally the fuel for our artificial sort of manufactured industrial world that it is natural it's as natural as as it gets you know and i mean everything's natural uh, to some degree but i mean it, it it's a natural element that used in certain ways is poison you know so you mm-hmm. cannot extract oil from water and so you know people have just sort of stopped talking i mean at least in the mainstream about the bp oil spill yeah and it's like i mean half of what environmentalists were talking about was like the long-term effects of of this oil spill now we're now we're getting to territory of rob nixon and slow violence and you know uh the sort of spectacular uh emphasis in, in news coverage but all that stuff is still there yeah you know what i'm saying like uh, all those effects are, are still being felt um and so, and this, I guess the movie predates BP uh, by four years. I guess that was 2000. Was it 10 or 11? I do not remember. I can't remember, but uh, either way, it, it predates it. Uh, but all I'm saying is that the, uh, the oil on the camera lens... 2010. 2010. Yeah. Uh, it may be, as Ghosh implies, a sort of implication. Like, if, if the camera lens is our perspective, it's how we are viewing this world, you know, as as he has bl- uh, not uh, blood, but uh, oil well, on his hands. Well, the fact that you had that slip, right? right. Well, it's because they're used so interchangeably yeah. in, in the film and, and just in the world. I, like, as I watched this documentary uh, called Blood and Oil about the history, you know, recent American history with uh, oil, especially in Saudi Arabia. There's a... a, a very interesting book by the gentleman uh, <laughs> Leif Weiner, yeah. uh, Blood Oil. Uh, so, so blood and oil are, are definitely uh, I don't know, linked in some sort of rhetorical. I don't even know what you'd call that uh, metaphorical way. Mm-hmm. A lot. Yeah, and um, if anyone is interested in. Uh, reading about the effects that those things can have. There's this great book called The Gulf, The Making of an American Sea by Jack E. Davis. Not Jackie, but Jack middle initial D. E. Davis. Yeah. Um, that that I uh, listened to the audiobook of, and it's this great kind of history of the Gulf that quite literally starts with its formation, <laughs> like with, with uh, the breaking of Pangea and all that stuff, and goes up through today with deep heart, deep water horizon and all that kind of stuff um, and just to read how yeah those parts of the Gulf will just never really recover like they'll literally never be the same um, and that paired with you know um, destruction of swamplands and um, uh, mangroves all that sort of stuff it's just it, it has reshaped literally and kind of imaginatively this whole region that for a long time was this incredibly bountiful biodiverse area um and it's just you hate to see it 
<laughs> you hate to see it. After. Yeah. Well, it's interesting how quickly you know we can we can make the leap from from there will be blood to these sort of uh, very current political issue. I mean, environmental issues, and how that, I won't say it's largely ignored in discourse on the film, but unseen because I remember hearing Paul Thomas Anderson talk about just how political the novel is he said the challenge you know obviously that stuff's there and the challenge is making a movie that's interesting to watch that you know the characters are not just these archetypes of or you know metaphors of like oh Plainview is capitalism Uh, Eli is evangelical religion they have to be Eli Sunday and Daniel Plainview uh, first, so, so that we, or or at any time, uh, so that the audience has an entry point to give a shit about about what they may come to represent. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, Anderson also talks a lot about sort of dressing up the political allegory as a horror film, and uh, you mentioned Greenwood's score which is phenomenal and I want to talk more about that later but uh, that opening score of just uh, I don't just dissonant I don't even know how to describe it strings dissonant strings is how I what I call it uh, sort of roots itself in in horror film score you know it, 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 I also remember reading one of the major um, <clears throat> film influences was the Shining, and it's weird when you you know when you start yeah. thinking about it how many similarities there are as just sort of this tale of descent, you know this descent into madness, uh, which which you definitely see with Jack Torrance, I believe his name is in yeah. The Shining. Um, I think that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, and in a lot of ways. You can view well. I mean, this is maybe a stretch, but I think it, it's one way of looking at it. Is thinking of this as kind of in the same way The Shining is a horror movie. This is kind of a horror movie, kind of a monster movie about this is what it looks like when you know capitalism and the the will to profit and power kind of mm-hmm. runs amok, and this is the the kind of person that is created. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just it's thinking about all the things that, that Daniel tells us about his past, or he, he tells them to Henry, um, mostly. And so, you know, he talks about the, the house back in, uh, was it Fond du Lac? Fond du Lac. Fond du Lac in Wisconsin, Wisconsin I think. Yeah. And the house <laughs> that he's like, always wanted that house, and always wanted these things. And I wanted to eat in it, <laughs> to clean it. it. It's just such a weird, like, like covetous, capitalist kind of view of like I, I wanted not that I wanted to live in the house I wanted to own it I wanted to like have it be mine and he said he wants to have children to run around in it <clears throat> even as a boy um, yeah but the way he phrases everything it, it's like this is supposed to be some sort of like sentimental nostalgic thing um, and, yeah. and and for him like relatively speaking it is but then you know that speech concludes with Okay, you know his his surrogate brother figure saying 
okay, basically you're a millionaire now. Are you going to build your house here? Are you going to make it look like that, that house? And he says, I think if I saw that house now, it'd make me sick. <laughs> so far, like so far removed is he from that, uh, anything domestic, uh, yeah. or boyish or, you know, sentimental in any way. I don't know why it just reminds me of like car commercials and how they'll sell through nostalgia. It'd be like buy a Ford truck because your grandpa had a Ford truck and he drove it for sixty years. And you're it's like, oh yeah, I remember Papa's truck and it's supposed yeah. to be this like wholesome memory, but really it's like it's just this cycle of consumption that they're right. trying to get started. Right. Um yeah. Anyway, um Another thing I want to point out from this paper real quick because it, it's tied into all of this and it, it gets to this sort of idea of extraction and, and definitely kind of the extraction of oil and the uses of oil, this kind of stuff. And it's uh, taking this idea from uh, Carolyn Merchant, who is, her big book is uh, The Death of Nature. And she has this quote about the metaphor of the earth as a mother. And she says, the metaphor of the earth as a nurturing mother was gradually to vanish as a dominant image as the scientific revolution proceeded to mechanize and to rationalize the worldview. The second image, nature as disorder, called forth an important modern idea, that of power over nature. Two new ideas, those of mechanism and of the domination and mastery of nature, became core concepts of the modern world. As Western culture became increasingly mechanized in the 1600s, the female earth and virgin uh, earth spirit were subdued by the machine and then um, a couple of short quotes from Leo Marx when he's doing this reading of Thomas Jefferson and he says about uh, Jeff Jefferson's worldview um, assuming that knowledge inescapably is power for good he cannot imagine that a genuine advance in science or the arts such as the new steam engine could entail consequences as deplorable as factory cities Jefferson's scientific worldview blinds him to, quote, what the machine portends for America, because in his belief, the land is, quote, locus of both economic and moral value. Um, and it's sort of funny to see that Jefferson viewing this as um, inherently good, right, and um, that he can't foresee these consequences, and just remembering that, you know, Andreas Malm and, and, and even um, Timothy Morton have both identified the the patenting of the steam engine as like the moment when climate change, when the Anthropocene kind of kicks off. Malm talks about it as a moment when the Anthropocene starts, and then Morton identifies it as when the world ended, <laughs> when his weird conception of right. the world having ended multiple times. Mm -hmm. um, so just this idea of um, rationality and science and advancement and technology, how it's kind of inextricably linked to these ideas or to the use of oil on the one hand, um, but also the idea that extractive capitalism is always kind of inherently for the good and it's always driving us forward and moving us to the future. And it's interesting how, you know, how closely related in the film we see uh, evangelical religion emerging at the same time as industrial capitalism and how where religion sort of has this... Uh, ideology of dominion it's actually uh, industrial capitalism that is enacting the ideology of dominion and so and so it takes this 
you know, the mass public with their ideology of dominion to sanction the uh, practical application of that ideology to the land. So you, you, the, you know, at the beginning of the film, you see a lot of Plainview's job is selling. Yeah, I'm an oil man. Selling himself, uh, selling his company, um, and, and he always sells it in the name of progress. You know, and, and he almost sort of low key shames them for their sort of backwoods, you know, uh, whatever the opposite of progressive is, just sort of uh, status quo, um, where you're just sort of complacent, like complacency is sort of how he, he makes, makes how they view, you know, a lack of, I think, is it a lack of bread? He's like, I don't think uh, anyone should have to look on a loaf of bread as a luxury. Uh, you know, he sells it with education, with yeah. with building the church, um, but all these things are rationalizations. Yeah, it's like a so civilizing can, mission. Like I, right. I will bring civilization to you out right. here in and, the wilderness. And it's and there's de- some definite connections between you know, 21st century, late 20th century and 21st century international uh, oil relations, uh, which you see starting to, starting off with uh, the grown HW at the end who's going to Mexico, sort of the first international uh, oil endeavor. Uh, But yeah, we're, uh, I'm thinking about the Bush administration and, and selling this idea of, of a civilizing influence, um, Mm-hmm. Spreading democracy, um, and obviously that's just the face of it, it's a facade. And what's really going on is we want your natural resources because it, uh, oil is how the world, how the American economy goes. Yeah, there's a great line in a, a thermal song called Our Power Doesn't Run on Nothing. Um, and that was they had this whole album that was kind of like an allegory of the Bush years, which are you know it, it's coming back into style, right? <laughs> like everything old is new again, and all the old uh, kind of protest music from when I was in high school is now applicable, uh, or a lot of it is. And so in this song, uh, they say uh, we're more equal. We'll move your people off the planet because goddamn, we need the fuel. Um, and and that's kind of been. American policy for a long time and not even going I mean to, to go forward and talk about how all this um, oil capital kind of exists in our current day um, you could as easily go backwards and talk about the coal industry um, up until fairly recently um, and going into places like where I'm from in eastern Kentucky and telling people you know we'll bring you schools and we'll build a store and will build houses and not telling you that that's all dependent on your near slave labor in the mines and you're going to get paid in script and um, you're going to be basically owned by the coal company and it's owned by some, you know, fat, rich fuck up in Pennsylvania right. or whatever. Right. Um, but it's that same kind of idea of using progress and civilization, at, like you're saying, as a cover story so you can come in and extract people's but, mineral wealth and, right, and the, leave them the, with nothing. The first thing you have to do, like Plainview does, is is convince them that there is a problem that 
you, you have to set a, a national standard for what is normal and right. And what, what we think is normal, normal and right is that you, sh- you know, you have like a family of five and, uh, you know, you keep your air conditioning on 68 degrees. You go to Disney round. World once a year. You go to and... Disney World once a year. Uh, and so, and so one, you have to establish that as a standard to make people, the people who don't have that feel like they need it in order to be just baseline happy. Not even like, they don't conceive of it as luxury. That's just the baseline. Yeah. Uh, and so that's what you see Plainview doing. It, like I said, like I said, he makes them seem complacent. He makes them seem backwards. Uh, and, and from there can sell them, you know, the, the, the civilizing technologies. Um, but to go forward a little bit, I think you can see that uh, maybe uh, to a, a lesser degree than the coal industry and the fracking industry. Oh yeah, for uh, sure. which if you've ever seen those those documentaries that are the only thing anyone ever talks about in terms of fracking is Josh Fox's Gasland and Gasland Two. Yeah, uh, and for good reason. They're great. They're very compelling. Uh, but you see the the way these companies. Uh, try to sell themselves uh you know it's the the old offer of sell out your neighbors for your own personal wealth uh, which seems ridiculous but i guess it seems less ridiculous when there's someone holding out a check for you that says however many millions of dollars yeah that's part of what gets lost and and a lot of that is the the fact that you're going well not always sometimes you just come in with tanks and take it but sometimes you're going in um, to these people that, uh, like you're saying, like they might not be, you know, completely destitute, but they're not doing as well as they should be given that we live in such a wealthy nation. Right. Um, and you're saying, you know, I can write you a check right now. I'll cut you a check for, you know, more money than you're going to earn in the next few years. Mm-hmm. You just have to let us, you know, you have to shake hands with the devil and let mm-hmm. us, let us do this terrible thing that will probably ruin your land and you'll have like fire coming out of your faucets and all that kind of stuff. Um, and people will do it. Yeah. It's interesting. And like I said, Plainview is sort of a salesman at the beginning of the film. But as soon as someone tries to sell him, when, uh, Tilford, the standard oil rep is trying to sell him, I'll make, he says, I'll make you a millionaire from one minute to the next sitting right here. And he says, he says, what would I do with myself? You know, and he says, well, take, <laughs> take care of your son. And that's when he, something snaps and he says, he's going to, uh, one night when you're asleep, I'm going to come into your room and cut your throat. And Tilford's <laughs> like, what? What? Yeah, we were talking about that earlier. I was saying, you, you're not really sure what sort of, uh, what sort of reaction Tilford's going to have because you don't really know what sort of movie this is and you don't know like oh is it normal in this world that the film creates for this guy to just go around making crazy threats or is this rooted in reality and so you don't know how Tilford's going to respond and so he says I'm going to come into your house and cut your throat and it cuts to Tilford and he just has this look of just like utter confusion which is which is exactly (laughs) how it would be in real life he's not even necessarily scared he's just like what? Uh, it's just very confused. Uh, 
but that adds to I think the characterization of Plainview as just madman. You know? Yeah, and uh, I like to look at that as not being not being what he's saying it is, which is how dare you tell me how to raise my son? How but, dare you tell me anything? Yeah, how dare you try to you <laughs> sell? Know, me. You make the deal, right? It's a uh, you know Trump's whole being a good salesman and making great deals thing. Right, he makes the, the best deals. Um, Daniel's very much like I'm the one who who knocks, the deal. who makes the deals. <laughs> um, and so when when uh, Tilford makes that offer, he's just he's kind of looking for anything to latch onto, and then he says, "Well, you can take care of your son." He's like, "That's it. That's, That's what I can go with." Yeah. Um, and that leads to that great scene in the the restaurant where he goes over and. He's like, I told you so. Why does he cover his face with the napkin? Is I, I thought it was so HW can read his lips. Good, didn't know he was saying anything. Uh, yeah. Even though it's like, why would you? <laughs> why would you do? Yeah, you could or just maybe like, it was cover like a, your mouth a little bit. I or, or maybe he was just like trying to be a smartass or something. To be honest, I think it was like Daniel D. Lewis thinking like, fucking around up. I'm gonna cut. make. Yeah. Um, or no, just being like, this is what like I am Daniel Plainview, and this is what he would do. <laughs> right. Um, goes over and drinks his whiskey you look like a fool you look like a fool don't you and I, I you you kind of like Tilford you know he's just sort of like above it he's like I'll suffer this fool I'm a millionaire it doesn't matter yeah it's like um, he'll go away eventually yeah so so you don't even you know plan you any uh, satisfaction he gets is just Satisfaction created from his own ridiculous standards. You know, it's not, it's not, oh, I made him look stupid. I beat him. That guy does not give a shit. Uh, he's more obsessed with like the volume of oil that he's exporting mm-hmm. through his pipeline and that sort of stuff. Right. Um, which is, you know, all sorts of, you could do all sorts of psychosocial, like, he's obsessed with how much he can ejaculate out into the world um, how long his pipeline is yes yeah. um, all, all that all that good stuff like the the girth of the pipe and <laughs> length of his drill bit um, so oh, fuck what was I gonna say I had it and then all the dick talk knocked me off off track yeah and now I'm never Every gonna time. get it back here's something I noticed so you can't you know you can't talk about you can't watch a movie about oil extraction and not talk about some sort of environmental issue. But uh, the movie does not ever, I don't, I, as far as I can see, paint this sort of trope that, that we talked about before with the machine in the garden. Not because there's not a machine, but because there's not a garden. Um, I, I don't see anywhere the film glorifying nature as as this Eden upon which industry is intruding. It doesn't necessarily depict it as ugly, but just the, the nature of the location. You're sort of in the desert. Um, yeah. to where to where you never get that feeling of like paradise interrupted or you know, anything like that. Which I think is uh does something for the film's credibility in some ways. This is not a naive uh, tree hugging, as you know, we talked about that term at some point. Uh, 
you know, it's not this uh, outwardly explicit, preachy, environmentalist uh, film. And the, the environmental implications are so there just by the very nature of the subject that, that it's a good rhetorical strategy, in my opinion, for it not to engage in some sort of naive, sentimental... Um, you know, oh, we're we're destroying nature with our with our tools. Um, you know, at, at no point, at least uh, for me, at no point did I feel like the earth was being sentimentalized or glorified. Um, yeah, and I think that you can sort of tie that into the way we look at oil now, which is where does it come from, or where do we think of it as coming from, like the Middle East from the desert. It right? comes you're from not, the gas pump. Yeah. You're, you're not, you're not thinking about like, oh, it's so terrible that they ruined that desert. Right. That's not, it's right. not something that we think now, you know, with things like offshore, offshore drilling is a different kind of, you know, yeah. terrible idea that, that you can think about. But I think you're right that it's not this edemic landscape. It's not this idea of, oh, to look how, Poorly, they treated this wonderful, beautiful nature because it's kind of like you're saying it's it, it's not necessarily ugly, right? It's just like these people live in a desert. Basically. It's it's beautifully shot, yeah, but it's not in itself a beautiful landscape. Yeah, um, I just remember what I, what I forgot about. It was the idea of we were talking about um, Daniel promising progress and and uh, to bring in a school and all these sorts of things. And that kind of fuels his conflict with Eli. Um, And this is where we could talk about um, how evangelicalism kind of works in the film. Because Eli needs the people of the area to be desperate, right? In order to come to him and he has the promise of a better life and he can heal them and he can do all this sort of stuff. And if Daniel's coming in and saying, you know, I'll bring you a school and, you know, maybe in the future there'll be a hospital or whatever it could be. Eli's kind of seeing his cash stream kind of slip away a little bit. Um, and that, I think that's part of what drives that conflict between them. And that's why Eli, part of why Eli gets so pissed off when he wants to do the blessing at the opening of the well. And Daniel, uh, you know, usurps it and kind of gives this more secular sort of blessing. Um, yeah. So, and that's one thing that makes um, Daniel more relatable, even though he is this kind of monster, is that he's not stupid and he sees through Eli the whole time. Mm -hmm. Like immediately he's like, this dude is a salesman. Like I recognize one when I see one. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm not going to buy into anything. Well, he, he recognizes it cause he is one. Yeah. 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 And what you see, you know, with the other characters you've met so far, and especially with the rest of the Sunday family is sort of meekness, especially Mm -hmm. the father, Abel, and even Paul, the other character, you know, the twin brother, I guess, yeah. played by Paul Dano, is sort of mild-mannered and, and deferential and meek. And it's only when we meet Eli that we meet anyone with any sort of assertiveness uh, that could even, you know, come close to rivaling Plainview's assertiveness that has been well-established by that opening sequence. Uh and so you uh, at that dinner scene when um, Eli 
sort of takes over the father's role in the negotiations. Uh, you see that this is going to be a sort of, uh, I think Anderson described the dynamic as a battle royale, a sort of, <laughs> you know, two giants wrestling, sort of King Kong versus Godzilla sort of thing. Uh, now I forgot what I was going to oh, say. Well, that, that along with the setting kind of, that's what always, whenever I see this movie, it always just reminds me of uh, McTeague. Frank Norris novel. I was going to bring that up. That's weird. Because uh, it, it has that kind of feeling to it. Well, the time period lines up. And, well, and, and you know, Upton Sinclair, uh, I think a little bit unfairly, gets uh, lumped in with the naturalist writers like Frank Norris and uh, uh, Dreiser. But Upton Sinclair, you know, famously was a sort of a socialist yeah. uh, who definitely believed in you know collective change and proved it with uh, with his book The Jungle um, and so I, I do think that Sinclair has a naturalist streak in him and this this story is again I haven't read the novel but the There Will Be Blood is a a tale of descent which most you know naturalist novels are um, but there's a difference between a descent as an inevitability as seen in McTeague it's like oh human beings are animals who are subject to their impulses and cannot help themselves and the true creatureliness of this brute will um, manifest and you will end up you know uh, chained you know, chained up in a to desert, a corpse. <laughs> chained to a corpse in the desert, looking for your gold, like you know, like McTeague ends. Spoiler alert! And um, for a novel but, written in nineteen oh one or yeah. whatever it was. Um, but there's a difference between that sort of descent and the descent of Daniel Plainview as like a critique of an ideology. It, it's almost like Sinclair is critiquing that sort of uh, the ideology of naturalistic inevitability social Darwinism uh, but to critique it he has to show it and show the problems with it um, yeah there's I, I, I have, I'm very interested in naturalism I'm more interested in how it seems to be very appealing to like 21st century graduate students at least you know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah. like McTeague is a is a cool book, uh, but it, it's just very interesting to me how readily, uh, you know, a certain type, uh, you know, uh, decently well read young people now, how readily we uh, want. It's like we want to accept that inevitability that is part of naturalist writing and I think it has something to do with not wanting to be seen as sentimental you know what I'm saying like yeah. like how how more anti-sentimental can you get like you can't there's, there's nothing can be changed you are inevitably controlled by your uh, unconscious impulses um, yeah and so and so we confuse a lack of sentimentality with intellectualism 
And so we just, you know, that's all we want to do is, is be seen as the smartest. Yeah. I, I'm, you, you're like, I am the most, no. I'm the saddest bastard. Therefore yes. <laughs> I am the smartest. Exactly. Um, exactly. It, it, naturalism can run into some issues like Norris does in McTeague when you start to say things like, well, of course, Jews are naturally avaristic and well, just just the whole phrase naturalism. It's like uh, you know, it's like when a brand names their product something like if if you start a coffee company and call it World's Best Coffee, yeah, it's like oh, that's world, uh, that's the world's best coffee because that's the name of it. Well, this label for this genre or this era of writing naturalism. You know, has some uh, some heavy rhetorical problems just by you know calling itself natural. Well, natural according to who? The same way realism is problematic. The, the term realism, like real yeah. for who, when, or um, the way like people in the alt right will use the term rational or logical, right? Which you think of it as meaning like lacking sentimentality or lacking these emotions that can get you into these horrible situations and and really the way they're using it is to say you know ignore anything that could have to do with you know basic human decency that right. kind of thing pragmatic um, is another term you hear yeah you, you, know, you hear pragmatic. a lot of those terms and i think for the scope of of the podcast and in relation to the idea of the anthropocene i don't think that's an especially helpful worldview like going back to toller's whole thing of rationalism is never solved anything right mm-hmm. that uh, the darkness is the same um, as, it, as it always has been except now it's kind of exacerbated a little bit so I think it, now it's not helpful to have that worldview of like if it's not logical or pragmatic then I'll ignore it outright it's like we'll have fun drowning in the boiling seawater right, right. Um, there needs to be some sort of emotional Outpouring emotional connection. There has to be, or else, like, what are we even doing? And you see it, and and I think it's a brilliant part of There Will Be Blood. You see, uh, to Sinclair, uh, maybe it's Sinclair, maybe it's Anderson, I don't know, to one of their credits, uh, you see Plain View's just maniacal competitiveness, his competition as repression in this movie and you don't really see it well I guess you see it a little bit when he says uh, someone asks if he's married and he says I don't want to talk about those things Um, just sort of explicitly you know cluing us into that Um, but then you see it at the end after he you know does his famous bastard from a basket uh, (laughs) speech to HW and then he breaks down and you, you know, it's weird. He's supposed to seem so hard-boiled. You see him weep twice in the movie after he kills uh, Kevin J. O'Connor's character mm-hmm. who he th- lies about being his brother. He gets drunk and cries. And then after he screams at H.W. at the end, and there's that flashback, which is like, uh, we, you know, the only thing even close to sentimental in this movie. Uh, and he's just gone on this sort of Speech about how you know he doesn't care what HW does. He's just a competitor. He's just a bastard from his basket. He's an orphan. Um, there's no 
you know, they don't share blood. They don't, they're not blood related, so it doesn't matter. But then immediately you see the film uh, argue against that and show how ridiculous that is because you see that, that relationships are not, you know, that's, that's uh, blood relations is not the stuff of relationships. Uh, because you see this memory Plainview has with his son just some random time out on the, you know, where they were drilling uh, and they're playing and just sort of uh, roughhousing, I guess. Uh, It's this very, you know, sort of magic hour time and it's just a very pleasant nothing scene. Um, And so what I'm saying is in a truly naturalistic story, uh, the sort of Darwinian uh, blood relations theory that Plainview espouses would not be problematized the way it is in There Will Be Blood. It's, it, it shows that that is not true. That is not, bonds are not formed, uh, you know, only through, uh, you know, who you're related to by blood. They're formed by who you spend time with and who you, uh, you know, who you interact with. Yeah. And that's, and like you're saying, that's um, expressed in him, uh, you know, at the end saying, you know, you're, you're just a competitor now to, to HW. And then when he, when he kills Henry, um, who's been pretending to be his brother, which is sort of, that's such a just weirdly complex scene um, of him, you see Daniel, who's so completely dedicated to this idea that blood relation is the only thing that really matters, so much so that when he finds out he murders this man, right, mm-hmm. who he's just spent a lot of time with right. and seems to get along with swimmingly, right, and literally swimmingly. <laughs> um, see what you did there. And so there's, it, when he just shoots him in the head, which is a very, like, one of the weird, weirder kind of visceral kind of murder scenes in any film. Yeah, because um, it's just like this little bitty pistol. Yeah. It's like the the little noisy cricket from Men in Black. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the fact that he just sort of like doesn't die immediately. It's sort of like a weird like... Uh, it's just it's very... It's an intimate murder. Yes. <laughs> um, and so... Just that, that idea that it's like, if it's not blood relation, it doesn't, even though H.W.'s not really his son, he sort of like adopted him mm-hmm. as, as a, a tool in a lot of ways. Yeah, um, yeah. And so it's just such a, that's such a, when that happens, it's such a shocking moment, right? And it kind of, it's not like the audience already had a high opinion of Daniel, but it, after that, it's it he kind just of took plummets. it there, yeah. 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 Um, one thing that we cannot avoid in any of these movies seems to be the motherlessness. Um, and I was saying before we started recording, this is, this is not something we planned or like talked about. It's no. just in real time, we're sort of realizing how utterly lacking, uh, you know, the nurturing sort of mother figure is in these movies, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously. In the case of There Will Be Blood, I think it's extremely conscious. I think it's the, uh, largely the point um, in, in a lot of ways. But I wanted to read uh, just a little snippet from the Roger Ebert review. 
uh, he was sort of ambivalent about there will be blood. It's mostly positive, but basically he says no country for old men was the better film. It deserved everything it got. There will be blood's not a perfect film. And he says no country for old men is a perfect film. Uh, anyway, this the final paragraph of Ebert's review says there will be blood is the kind of film that is easily called great. I am not sure of its greatness. It was filmed in the same area of Texas used by No Country for Old Men, and that is a great film and a perfect one. But There Will Be Blood is not perfect, and in its imperfections, its unbending characters, its lack of women or any reflection of ordinary society, its ending, its relentlessness, we may see its reach exceeding its grasp, which is not a dishonorable thing. So there's a little bit of ambivalence there, but I think it's a real misstep to criticize the movie for what he calls its lack of women, because the movie so consciously calls attention to its expulsion of women from the story. So I think the first mention of it is in one of these sort of town hall meetings where he's trying to sell his business uh, the crowd kind of erupts into a an argument about you know about this situation and you hear someone in in the background um, say sit that woman down you have no business being here sit that woman down Um, and so that's the first time you hear women being explicitly removed from this conversation um, then when when Plainview and HW go to the Sunday Ranch, they sit down to have negotiations with Eli and Abel. And Abel says, Mother, would you take the girls out of here? And so, obviously, you, you just see this sort of... Uh, Anderson trying to clue everyone in to like, look, these characters are expelling the women. This society is expelling the women, uh, not not me. I'm simply depicting, you know, this this sort of story, this this uh, plight. Um, and, and there's probably a few other examples of that uh, that I can't really think of. What is the excuse for why the mother is absent? So she died in childbirth, right? Something like that. Right. Um, but it's this idea, and it's still very much around of being a businessman, right? Of being, you know, a captain of industry. Usually you think of some rich dude in an expensive suit or whatever. Right? Uh, and the idea of, you know, being out on the prowl to make deals. I mean, that's a big part of what got Trump elected, right? Is he's a, he's a businessman. He knows what he's doing. He's mm-hmm. successful. Um, and it's a very kind of masculine, hyper-masculine world, right? Um, just think about, like, you know, American Psycho is again one of those that has this kind of um, hyper masculinity to this pursuit of uh, capitalist success, um, and especially like you're saying, since this movie's taking place in the at the turn of the of the twentieth century, it makes perfect sense that you would have the women being like you're saying, literally expelled from mm-hmm. these these areas of you know take them out so we can. So the men can talk business, that kind of thing. Right, but you see in the film just how uh, destructive this industry 
is, you know, industrial capitalism. It's not a desirable thing. And I think a really really hard thing to talk about at this moment in history is is the fact that a lot of what passes for um, sort of 21st century feminism is the inclusion of women into this paradigm of capitalistic exploitation. Um, and it reminded me of this this Wendell Berry quote, which just happened to be handy right here, um, where he said, this is from his essay, Feminism, the Body and the Machine, where he says, it is clear that women cannot justly be excluded from the daily fracas by which the industrial economy divides the spoils of society and nature, but their inclusion is a poor justice and no reason for applause. The enterprise is as devastating with women in it as it was before. There is no sign that women are meeting, or I'm sorry, there is no sign that women are exerting a civilizing influence upon it. To have an equal part in our juggernaut of national vandalism is to be a vandal. To call this vandalism liberation is to prolong and even ratify a dangerous confusion that was once principally masculine. So, making a space for the girls at the table in the negotiations, uh, you know, between Eli and and uh, Abel or and, and Daniel, Barry sort of seems to imply is is no is not, not a real it's not woke. Right? No, it's not a real form of liberation. It's actually capitalism uh, coming to encapsulate more. It's it's a um, augmenting its reach um, under the guise of progress. Um, It's just, you know, patriarchy including women is just adding to patriarchy. It's not challenging patriarchy. Um, And I'm, you know, obviously this argument can be cut down immediately because I am, because I am a man. And, And that's, I don't say that ironically, like, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. obviously there's uh, credibility problems with me saying that, but uh, I do think it's worth worth thinking about because now you see these companies. Uh, you know, I think it's interesting, and at the beginning of There Will Be Blood, when Paul comes to tell him about the uh, oil opportunity, he asks him what his religion is, what church he belongs to, and you see Daniel sort of think for a little while and say, I don't, uh, uh, you know, I, I go to many churches. I, I like them all. And if you listen carefully, he said, he says, I like them all. He waits a second. He says, I like everything. Like, <laughs> I like them all. I like everything. What do you want me to like? I like it. Yeah. And it, and you, I can't help but think of like, just how willingly the, you know, the market embraces social change because the last thing the market wants to do is, I'm saying the market, where it's not an autonomous thing, corporations yeah. uh, and marketers. Well, you say it's not an autonomous thing, that's what, but there are plenty of people, many of them prominent in our government, that think it is an right. autonomous and, thing. Right. And that I thought of that, and so I wanted to change that rhetoric very quickly. Um, 
you see, the last thing that they want to do is alienate consumers. And so if there is something that they think is going to lose them favor, you know, with the consumer, they, they'll change that. They, they are on board. They only benefit from seeming woke. Um, but it's just to, it's just to swallow more, you know, to, you know, to get people consuming more. I sort of thought about these issues in the scene in There Will Be Blood where Plainview sort of drinking at the, at the, after the blessing of the well and you see him uh, stop Mary. She's running around playing. He stops her. And we've learned that Abel beats her because she doesn't pray. And he gives her that speech of, you know, daddy doesn't hit you anymore, does he? <laughs> and, and so you see this sort of uh, moral act right but it's like how is this guy the moral authority who's you know this crazy money greedy you know profit obsessed person how is he some sort of moral influence on this little girl and it's only it's only moral in comparison to Abel's fucking you know craziness uh, yeah yeah that's and this point you're making about um, you know, bringing in uh, women or whatever other kind of underrepresented populations in order to seem woke. To, but the in this idea from Barry that you know allowing women to negotiate how we're going to destroy the planet isn't you know the kind of representation that we're that is needed really. <clears throat> it kind of reminds me, you know, not to diminish uh, you know the subjugation of women or anything, but it reminds me to a lot of the conversations going on about. Um, global global CO2 emissions which went up last year um, even though we have all this information, they're still going up um, and a big part of it is because these in the global south, all these developing nations are still on things like coal-fired power plants like India and China and, um, even though China keeps making these strides and building solar farms and all this sort of stuff and a big part of that argument is it you can kind of boil it down to the the global north or the first world or whatever you want to call it telling these developing nations what you're doing is wrong uh, you need to stop you know using coal or whatever it may be and then these nations the developing nations turning around and saying well this is how you developed like this is how you came to prominence mm -hmm. and now when we're when we finally have access to it you're going to tell us to stop fuck you we're going to keep going right. um and it's a thing where it's like that's not it's not a kind of it's different from your example but it's a, not the kind of development that is sustainable or that it should be happening but it's kind of what they have access to and it, and it does seem highly unfair to be like you can't just do that you can't just exploit resources willy nilly well that's kind of how we became um, you know a number one best nation in the world, two time back to back World War champion. USA, USA. USA. Uh, yeah. I, uh, this is just sort of a superficial connection I made. Plainview founding or funding Eli's church reminded me of the Bulk Corporation and First Reformed funding the abundant life and first reform churches so I think in both movies you see that the real church is 
the corporation or the business uh, and that uh, you know little c churches are just sort of manifestations uh, you know things that literally in this case only exist because of the larger the, the profits from the business um, and church in America is so weird and so like it's just strange to think about if you have that and then you know, we live right in the, the buckle of the Bible Belt mm-hmm. where we have, like, I, for some reason I thought of Dave Ramsey, who's not, like, he's not as bad as a lot of these, like, prosperity gospel people, but he is kind of along those lines of, you know, I'm, I'm rightly guided by God, so I'll give you financial advice and you can know where to invest your money. And then, you know, in downtown Nashville you have, like, the big-ass Lifeway building and, you know, all these Christian corporations in town we have that. A Christian bookstore. So I guess we only have a couple of them. We have yeah. more than one Christian bookstore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's just it's so strange to think about it as a, as a culture in America, mm-hmm. especially since American Protestantism is so, at least to me, seems to be so far removed from Christianity in a kind of traditional sense. Yeah, uh, it's it's very weird, uh, and and I think the weirdness of it, if you've you know, study the history of Christianity, the the weirdness of the contemporary American Protestant iteration of it is so weird because of this mingling we see in the <laughs> Christian mingling of <laughs> we see in there will be blood of business and religion yeah. and how they become one thing. And I think the perfect embodiment and we can't you know we can't talk about there will be blood which came out in two thousand seven without some reference to George W. Bush. Yes. And, and I think he is the perfect embodiment of this. You know, he is like the child of Eli and Plainview, of like oil and religion. You know, he, you know the Bush family's ties to oil. Um, and, uh, you know, George W. Bush famously consistently referring to being guided by God. When the president talks to God. Yes, as, as Connor Overs would say, when the president talks to God. Um, so, and like I said earlier, I think I mentioned Anderson said, like, all of this political stuff is so there that the challenge of the movie is making it is making it um Relatable, watchable on a on an entertaining level, as opposed to an, a documentary, allegorical level. Um, but but you can't ignore the political context in which it came out, where the president of the United States, who is rich from oil companies, and the vice president, you know, uh, Cheney's running Halliburton. Yeah. Um, and saying that God told him to do it, you know, all this stuff, you, you just, you can't ignore that. Um, and there's not really much to do with that, except say, obviously this is a critique of that. We see it as a, you know, as greedy and inhuman and murderous and all these things, but like, no one, like, what did we do about it? I mean... Nothing, and and it's weird how Bush now is sort of this like quaint figure. He just came out. He just published a fucking book of paintings, of like 
yeah. immigrants or something. It was like, what? He's like, you're the fucking war criminal. Don't you remember this? Like, everyone sort of softens up to him. Fuck George W. Bush. Like, Donald Trump is terrible. But fuck George W. Bush. People don't forget. Don't forget. That's the real never forget. Never forget. Never forget. That Jesus Christ. George W. Bush was fucking up. And it goes back to what I was talking about earlier of, um, like, all the, like, you know, Rock Against Bush or whatever albums from when I was growing up. That when I was in high school, he was evil. Well, at least for like me and my friend group. Don't get me wrong; there are plenty of people that were like, "Yeah, we got to support the troops," and uh, oh, because yeah, that's what I was surrounded because that was the kind of brain damage that affected my generation. But it's just sort of this, and, and you know, we're not the first people to talk about this, but the, that kind of reclamation of George W. Bush as being not that bad is just utter horseshit. It's mm-hmm. like you can't, we can't keep lowering the bar um you know it's already so incredibly low that we can't say well trump is so bad bush is not that not that bad anymore no they're both fucking terrible like something has to be done we have to do better not that obama was you know the messiah or anything he had plenty of shortcomings he just had better branding and was a great public speaker right um but And, and and genuinely intelligent i think yeah you know I saw a recent sit down with him uh, that uh, uh, Dave Eggers actually hosted or uh, sat down with Obama and gave, had this sort of discourse. And you realize uh, it makes it, it really does make you wish we had a president who could talk intelligently. And like, he was making references to literature and stuff, and like and the environment, and it's just like look. How is Donald Trump the president? My brother will text me every once in a while. Just say, reminder: Donald Trump is the president. I can't. I can't make it normal. Like I I shouldn't have done this. Well, I mean, not that I shouldn't have done this. It's just they probably didn't want me to do this. But I think I told a class at one point. I was like, I'm pretty sure our president has never finished a book. I think we had like just finished reading a novel. It's like I think we just did something that the president has never done. So, and I think that's true. Like, I, it's not like I'm, like, it's funny, but I also think that that's 100% true. I don't think that man has ever finished a book. Yeah. Not that that's, like, the sign of intelligence, but I I think it's... It's a mark, yeah, I don't know. Uh, Maybe it is. Here's a, here's a little passage from a book called Blossoms and Blood by Jason Spurb. This is on the films of Paul Thomas Anderson. He's talking about the political context in which... Um, there Will Be Blood came out. Uh, he's talking specifically about George W. Bush. As important as oil money was, the more contentious issue of faith. That didn't sound like a complete sentence. No. As important as oil money was... Is it just written like that? I think it's a typo. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, I'm just going to skip that sentence. Okay. Get the point. Often, the war on terror was painted by extremists on... This is a fucked up paragraph. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna edit it as I go. Okay. Often the war on terror was painted by extremists on both sides as a religious war, an epic battle between Christianity and Islam. America's transparently Christian leader did little to diffuse such inflammatory rhetoric, repeatedly making references to how God wanted him to be president. By 2006, with the Iraq War at a standstill and the U.S. domestic economy headed toward ruin, 
the American public began to turn on Bush and the Republican Congress as the destructive alliance Bush had successfully exploited for half a decade became increasingly apparent. I think people forget how I think he set like the record for lowest approval rating. I don't know if that still stands or not. I hope not. Well, I mean, the big thing, his big success was being president during 9-11. That was kind of what buoyed him up. Um, And the fact that afterwards he didn't appear weak, I guess, was, you know, he comes out like Texas swaggering all over the place, talking about how we're going to go get him. And people wanted that, right? We were a nation of bloodthirsty lunatics. (laughs) More so than ever before, I think, at that moment. Maybe, maybe you know, Pearl Harbor. But yeah. this, it was so... There was, I mean, absolutely no nuance in our understanding of... I mean, not that I would expect there to be. That that sounded really pessimistic, but that's true. Um, yeah. No, I, I, there's a great essay, short essay, by David Foster Wallace... The view from Miss Somethings. It, it's just it's an essay about where he was on 9/11. You know, like how he um, watched the news. And it's with these sort of Midwestern, middle-aged neighbors uh, of his, and he's just listening to how they're talking about it and feeling very, very alone <laughs> in. In, in seeing and hearing them accept the narrative put forth on on mainstream media outlets of like this is attack an attack on freedom this is an attack on your way of life which is something we need to talk about I think with there will be blood of this idea of uh, oil as integral to the American quote way of life which and is I mean it, it absolutely it is, is. Right? like even if even if you are you know, someone who's completely environmentally conscious, like oil is, like I was saying, it's viscous, right? It sticks to you, like you're you're using it somehow, um, right? And and even if you think it's bad, you can't deny that it is. I mean, it's it fuels the world. Yeah, America but, runs on Dunkins and <laughs> fossil fuels. And it's important to remember that it's not it's not that oil just kind of naturally by default was the fuel upon which everything ran it's we made it that way right, right? and i think people forget that of um you talking about the green new deal it's like, how can you get how can you get society off of oil it's so integral it's like yeah because we made it that way you so just, why can't we unmake yeah, it that you just way? fucking do it rearrange the chairs man <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> like just figure out a different way of doing things but it's so ingrained and, and just think about like american car culture which is a very deeply ingrained part of Americanness, right? Like the Dodge Charger and badass Camaros and that kind of stuff. That's it, it's a product of this fossil capital, you know, empire that that we live in, um, and it's really difficult to get people to view it any differently as being like. That's it's, why cars equal freedom. Therefore, the the burning of fossil fuels equals freedom. Right. It's just, it, it's so, such a deep and, part of our and people people can't see technologies as arbitrary. Uh, and that's that's something, there's a really interesting book called You Are Not a Gadget by Jaron Lanier, uh, where he talks about this concept of lock-in. Is that the guy with the dreadlocks? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
one of the like pioneers of virtual reality, but he's largely now a sort of cultural critic of technology. Um, but he talks about this concept of lock-in of like, yes, everything is arbitrary uh, to some degree. Like uh, the internet looks the way it looks because of human decisions. Uh, you know, the, the interface of your computer looks the way it looks because of human decisions. And there, there are other people who know how to program and all these things who can show you different ways that it could have looked. And, and I think uh, Werner Herzog's documentary, Lo and Behold, shows some of those alternative uh, ways the internet might have looked. Um, but lock-in, he says, is this idea that it can be anything, but once it is, once a decision is made, it is very difficult to undo. Uh, I think maybe we've talked about this before with like uh, cell phones. Yeah, it's kind like, of social inertia that it's yeah, just what it is. It's like now pay phones are gone. Yeah, They're, you don't have the option to like. It's there's not an option because the 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 alternative goes away uh, because it's not really an alternative. It's just like the an earlier iteration. Uh, and there's no there's no conversation. No one we didn't vote on iPhones. Uh, it's just here, uh, and now they're locked in. And you can't. I mean, it's, I mean, a lot of jobs require that you have a you know a smartphone of some sort. Yeah. Um, I mean, Uber and Lyft, right? They require that you not only have a car but also a smartphone, right? Um, and that you desperately need the money and you're willing to be slightly exploited for it. Right. Um, so so the world is. I mean, it's up for grabs. And, and it's a result of our human decisions, but once those decisions are made, they get sort of ingrained, like you say, and, uh, and hard to change. And I, I want to point to one that affects my life and that I hate very much, um, which is the change that I don't know who made this decision, if it was Congress or some asshole somewhere, decided that my uh, debit card had to have a chip in it. Mm -hmm. Um, and that chip has been known to break and I got my card and within about two weeks it broke. So I've had to like, you know, go to Kroger and plug it in three times and then swipe it or like I give it to somebody at, at like a coffee shop and I'm like, the chip doesn't work. I'm sorry (laughs) that you have to go through this. Um, and I think about all the time that like, no one asked me to vote on that. Like no one asked my opinion. It's just one day they're like, this is what we're doing now. And it's, so it's not even like. A lot of things, like you're talking about uh, with this idea of lock-in, those are part of kind of popular demand of, as a society, we get used to something being a certain way, and then all of a sudden it's always like that, or it's some version of that that looks very similar. Um, but there's also these examples where it just seems to come down from on high somewhere, and we don't really get a say, and it's like, this is just how the world is now. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the new age. Well, the the practicality of it, or just like the, the human the man-madeness of it, I think, is is uh, kind of mentioned in There Will Be Blood when when Plainview's giving a speech to to the town, you know, we spend the most time in, and he says, "This is the face." He said, "I wanted I wanted to be here in person, so you see, this is the face. No great mystery." And as if as if Anderson is sort of saying like this is how the world changed it's just by men making very you know practical business decisions and you see them like literally putting in the pipeline 
these things that we just take for granted, this like underground, you know, and technological infrastructure and industrial infrastructures that we just take as givens now. It's like human hands built this. And people got rich off this. And people died doing this, which you see a few times and there will be blood. Yeah. Uh, but but this is a very, this is, you know, very intentional human project. This is not natural. And so it is up for grabs. To, like we are responsible for how the world looks and how the world runs. Uh, to, to a certain degree, obviously, I'm not saying we control the world. Uh, but we are responsible for how harmoniously we exist in that, you know, mutual dependence on, or, or dependence on the earth. Yeah. And like you're saying, not thinking about the kind of human, not just the human input in building the, the world, building infrastructure, but kind of the human toll of it, of, um, you know, and there will be blood people dying trying to strike oil and that kind of stuff and how, you know, that's definitely part of it and it still happens, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. think of, um, you know, the countless miners that did and still are dying of of black lung and other Mm -hmm. respiratory illnesses of of digging for coal. The coal that then go, I want to sound like Homer Hickam's dad from October Sky for a minute, but the the coal that goes up to, to Pittsburgh and fuels the steel industry and that still makes planes and then we bomb other countries with the planes. Like it's, it's also incredibly interconnected. Mm-hmm. And like you're saying to see kind of where it starts, like this is ground zero for, you know, this explosion of the industrial world yeah, yeah. of the world we live in today. So we look around and we think like, well, if you're like us, you look around and you say, how did we get so fucked up? Like, how right. did we get here? Well, this is one of the ways that we got here. The, there's a, a thought from David Denby, the uh, uh, critic, and this is quoted in that Spur book, and hopefully this sentence is written a little better. Uh, when looking over there will be blood's vast rural landscape, the thrown-together buildings look scraggly and unkempt. The homesteaders are modest, stubborn, and reticent, but in their undreamed-of future, Walmart is on the way. <laughs> And I think that is an astute observation. <laughs> yes, 100%. That's why I, I don't know if I've ever told you this before, but uh, back in my, my hometown, there was a... Um, they built a Walmart, like, on top of a hill that they, like, flattened out. So it's literally, like, the Walmart overlooks the entire town. And it's kind of this weird kind of overlord position. Yeah, big brother. And there's also the uh, Stonecrest golf course that they, they built on top of an old strip mine. and They, they reclaim those spaces. But think about that idea of like taking a natural space, these beautiful hills, and then you just, just completely destroy them through strip mining. And you're like, okay, it's okay, we're going to reclaim it. Well, what do you reclaim it as? A fucking golf course. So it's like it, extractive capital comes in, strips all the minerals, and says, okay, now you know, you other, you know, fat cat assholes can have this and they come in and build this exclusive country club that you have to pay money to use this natural space. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and like like you hinted at in your paper or mentioned in your paper, even, even the sort of environmental actions we take where we're trying to preserve wildness uh, in uh, state uh, national parks 
State parks too. Any any sort of preserved space, yeah, is you know at first glance um, a, a worthy endeavor, but at the same time sends this message that this is a sacred space and everything so everything outside of it is profane space and can be destroyed for human gain uh, and, and really the sacred space is I think you say takes on like a womb like quality it's yeah. like oh this is a place for regenerative you know contemplation it's really just like a, a fueling station you know oh yeah. I, I gotta go to the woods to get my human on and uh, you know so I can have deep thoughts or whatever but it's really just so I can have enough sense of humanity to like suffer through my shit job and put you in know, my 40 hours yes go yes. home and binge Netflix so I don't kill myself exactly so it it kind of perpetuates the sacred space perpetuate perpetuates the profane space beyond it uh, I, I think we should uh kind of look at all space as in some metaphorical way sacred space and that the economy that we produce should uh, take into consideration you know the uh, you know however you want to define the sacredness of that space and be integral with it and harmonious with it at you know to the degree that it can be and I'm not saying it's a perfect, a perfect world of, you know, zero extraction or anything like that. But it's uh, it definitely can be way better than it is now, um, and that's not going to change until the ideology of you know people don't want it to change. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? They they don't even. It's like even if it were more prosperous to do it harmoniously people would still want to do it this way because this is the fucking American way this is how we've always done it therefore it's right and just think about how perverse it is that just think about how everyone thinks of of state parks national parks it's thought of being there to protect that area right so think about it has to be state mandated that we're going to protect an area from being destroyed or being um, you know, exploited or or just to have everything stripped out of it. Right? That's to take for granted the destruction of everything outside of it. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Like, why should that be assumed? You know, why yeah. should we assume that that is okay to but destroy that's the anything? Natural course, and that we have to put these certain plots of land and like witness protection. Yeah, if anything, call if, them if anything else. we should rope off the areas we can destroy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like <laughs> here, fuck with this all you want to, but don't touch. You know, the other ninety percent. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just like uh, and we. I don't know if you heard about the thing in Nashville where they were cutting down a bunch of trees. Oh yeah, for some sort of football event or something. Wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was for. Um, shit, I can't remember. I want to say it, it was a like draft or some sort of. Draft. Yeah, I think that might have been it. And yeah. So they wanted to set up like a stage for some sort of bullshit thing involved with it. So they were going to cut down a bunch of a bunch of trees, um, <laughs> which is just like the most just American thing. like get these trees out of here they're blocking yeah. the view of the the draft or whatever it's just so yeah the uh, uh, the writer uh, James Howard Kunstler who I referred to once I think in the first episode uh, 
he calls uh, he has a phrase he uses called uh, nature band-aids to refer to these little strips of trees and shrubs that you see in these you know fucking ugly landscapes like uh, around a fast food restaurant yeah, the hedges around a McDonald's yeah yeah like the hedges you know guarding or sealing off the uh, uh, dumpster behind a Chick-fil-A or whatever yeah uh, so it's like I mean those trees yeah why would you cut them down but also they, they were just <laughs> they were just kind of lipstick on the pig yeah. anyway you know um yeah so well we're running a little bit long um just like that pipeline <laughs> and I feel like we uh I feel like we talked about the movie for like half the time but that's fine because all the stuff we're talking well, is if you, directly I mean if it. all you want to do is know about the movie go fucking yeah, go watch, watch it yourself movie. There's plenty of people smarter than us that have probably said other things about it that you can... Oh, and read. we talked about the... Uh, uh, I don't know if we were recording yet, but everyone just sort of agrees this movie's a masterpiece. But it's mostly... They're mostly saying, wow, Daniel Day-Lewis got weird. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, yeah, he did get weird. But but that instant canonization is kind of an anesthetic to the... To the real content of the film, well, I think beautiful. Well, for one, like just visually beautiful, and if you even if you watch it on a phone screen, the shots just feel massive. It feels like a John Ford movie where you just yeah. have these sprawling shots of like the oil derrick blowing up or whatever it may be. Um, one, thi- just, one thing I did want to say uh, is, in in relation to that scene, maybe the most memorable scene other than the ending is when. Uh, when they strike oil and it blows up the music Johnny Greenwood's score is fucking perfect and I think in that Spurred book he talks about trying to represent an increasingly mechanized society and you see and you're I guess you hear in that score these disparate you know almost a arrhythmic instruments and, and it's like almost tribal sounding Right, you've got these like drums and then like some sort of uh, maraca uh, and they're they're offbeat and then you just sort of get drawn into the visuals you know you're seeing Plainview run around with his sledgehammer trying to get this uh, Derek to, to seal and uh, you get lost and, and by the time you become conscious of the music again all those disparate sort of tribal elements have fused into this industrial sounding um, just r- repetition uh, it, it's very it's very cool and I think very uh, microcosmic of the larger story you know because you see like you see Plainview starts in a hole in the ground he makes a little bit of progress puts these elements together he, he buys these tools he gets these workers and then by the end of the movie he's in this you know, suburban mansion. Yeah. Um, but I, what I'm saying is you hear that in Greenwood's score of these natural, um, um, separate elements coming together to form this fucking juggernaut of industry. Um, and it's, you know, I don't really, I don't know much about like musical theory or anything like that, but I know that that scene and that music is special. That's like, a, that's a, that's a, I, <laughs> That's a special scene. Yeah, and that's why they still have the, um, every so often you'll see, like, 
uh, them showing the film and Johnny Greenwood doing the score live with the orchestra, that kind of which I would love to see that. I've never seen that. Cool. Um, at some point, uh, I think it uh, maybe not anymore, but I know that he did it at least a few times. Um, so I guess we'll just call it there. Yeah. Um, and I guess I, I think we said a good transition yeah. because of uh, because of HW's. Uh, capitalistic baptism I think as you call it mm-hmm. uh, he is a sort of child of men <laughs> yes yeah, so next week and so next week we're going to uh, be doing A Bug's Life yes no, no uh, uh, Children and of Men and then Ants the week <laughs> after <laughs> yes um, but yeah, yeah we're going to be doing the week after that uh, Children of Men right, so it's uh, Alfonso Cuaron um, great film 2006 so again like backtracking one year at a time yep. which wasn't the plan but we'll see how it how it maybe we'll just do that from now on um so we'll be looking at that for next week talking about all, all sorts of cool things and and spending uh, i guess a large amount of time on the tracking shot at the end it's like what is it like 12 minutes for the tracking shot remember. or something like that um yeah and michael kane being Michael, it's, this will be the second Michael Caine appearance um, after Interstellar. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's good. So you can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and now on Spotify. Moving up in the world, we've made it. Yes, and then um, on Twitter at Anthropod Tweets, um, and we'll see you then. We're finished.